Hey there, I'm Beth McEntee and welcome to Inside Intercom. This week, we're bringing you an episode from the archives, taking a look back at some of the standout conversations we've had over the years. We're revisiting this episode from Scale, our series dedicated to the strategies and frameworks that drive business growth, with insights from leaders and thinkers from companies like Paddle, Yelp and Spread Social, people who have all successfully propelled their company to a new stage of growth, despite the odds. In this episode, Inside Intercom editor Amanda Connolly took to the podcast stage at SaaStock 2019 to chat with Matt Rogers, who at the time of recording was Google's head of SaaS initiative before he made the move to Twilio. Their conversation covered a variety of great topics, including the challenges faced by SaaS companies scaling in a rapidly evolving market, where even just keeping pace is a challenge in itself. They also cover AI trends in SaaS, discussing who was doing it right and what advancements Matt predicted in the space in the years that followed. If you enjoy our chat with Matt, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing on iTunes, Overcast, Spotify, or your usual podcast platform. Matt, thanks for joining us today. You're fresh off the stage where you were chatting about AI trends, which we will get to in a minute, but... First of all, I think it'd be really nice to kind of give everyone a sense of your job at Google. So you head up the SaaS initiative program, which means you work with SaaS companies all over the world to implement AI into their products. But tell us how you came about focusing your career in SaaS. Yeah, I I came uh, originally into cloud out of the hardware business. So I was working at Dell uh, Mm -hmm. and then moved into cloud because you could just see how fast the innovation was coming in that space and how transformative it was going to be across the whole industry. Uh, And so helped start one of the first cloud platforms and got to be part of the team that built that from zero to billions of dollars. And then about a year ago, we just got really excited about the opportunity across AI and uh, my favorite customers have always been SaaS companies, and so uh, joining Google, uh, my focus is exclusively on SaaS companies and how do we help them get started on Google Cloud and run programs for technical onboarding, uh, as well as co-marketing and co-selling that we do with SaaS partners all over the world. And you mentioned some of your previous roles there. So interestingly, you've worked in both sales and marketing as yes. well at Dell and Microsoft and obviously Google. but. How has that experience shaped the way you advise the SaaS companies you work with today? Well, it's been a great experience running both kind of teams just personally. Uh, It's a little bit of operations background, a lot of marketing background, a lot of sales background. Uh, And so I've seen SaaS and I've watched cloud from all of those different angles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's fun because you come from the marketing view of having a much more strategic view of what's happening across the market and how do you message your product and message your offering and make it relevant for people. And then sales of how do you actually make that real and start demonstrating and showing value for customers. Uh, Also got to help build one of the first customer success teams. And so that was a huge learning experience. Again, had to do it all the hard way. There wasn't (laughs) a lot of established practices at the time. Uh, But that background's really helpful as I get to work with these SaaS companies, having seen a lot of that for many years now, getting to watch what they're building and how fast it's all changing and emerging. It's incredibly exciting. It's a lot of fun. I can imagine. And you mentioned there about doing things the hard way. So obviously your SaaS initiative program is very like an accelerator. So you guys help SaaS companies build and market their products and sell them. But what do you think are the top challenges that face those SaaS companies today? 
Well, I mean, just beyond the, the really hard part, uh, which, you know, how do you have a great product that's mm -hmm. going to be relevant for customers that they're going to want to buy and how do you get it to market? I mean, that's obviously where you're going to spend the vast majority of your time. But you know, I have a lot of empathy for how you know, these companies are just trying to keep up in this rapidly evolving market. I mean, as I look at it just from the cloud technology standpoint of how fast uh, the underlying technology is changing, you know, how fast Kubernetes came about and how yeah. transformative that was of how people built apps. And now, particularly what's happening in AI and how fast that is evolving. Yeah. And just keeping up with the pace of that change is really hard. Similarly, particularly bearing a little bit by industry you're in, but the regulatory environment is changing constantly. Uh, and as you're trying to grow from a focus in one country to multiple countries and sometimes even different regions within one country, keeping up with that rapidly changing environment is incredibly hard. Uh, so for all of the you know, right focus of how do you build a great product, how do you take it to market that, uh, you know, just the challenges of keeping up in this environment with all those other external factors, uh, that's, that's quite a challenge for companies. And there are obviously a lot of startups here today at SaaStock, so you guys offer market development funds as part of the SaaS initiative. So beyond their use of Google Cloud, how are you choosing what companies that you support? Yeah, we, so there's a lot of things we look for uh, in that space. The, first of all, anyone can build on Google Cloud, so we welcome that, obviously. <laughs> uh, and, and we have a lot of you know, programs and technology available to help people get on board as fast as possible, no matter what space they're in or what product they're building. There, are, there is a partner program that, again, has a pretty wide open space of you know, anyone can come join that. Uh, and then once you're a partner, then we do try to be very proactive about communicating roadmap updates and training, different programs to help those companies you know, build something great with Google Cloud. And how do we make it as easy as possible? But within that ecosystem, there is a set of partners that we do invest more heavily in, like you mentioned, the MDF programs. Uh, and we look for companies that are aligned with the conversations we're having primarily with our commercial and government accounts or just short language enterprise accounts. Okay. So we, we tr you know, focus really heavily on uh, retail, financial services, manufacturing, public sector, uh, a couple other verticals that we have, you know, believe a differentiated story in. And as we go into these companies, what we're increasingly finding is it, the only way we're able to bring complete solutions to them that solve their problems involves some other partner product on top of us. Okay. Uh, so, and you know, this fastest AI adoption is coming in the enterprise. Most enterprises don't have giant data science teams that are building a lot of that AI technology themselves. They want to use someone else's software that can bring that AI innovation into their enterprise. So we look for companies like that that are aligned with the same enterprise focus we have, same workload focus we have, but make it better. And can you give us an example of any of those companies today? Yeah, one of the companies we really enjoyed working with a lot in the last year based here in Europe uh, is a company Qubit out of oh, London, yeah. uh, very focused in the retail space. Yeah. Uh, and they have some incredible personalization software, and I'm going to get the number wrong. <laughs> I love those guys, and <laughs> so forgive me for this. But it's something like billions of recommendations uh, every day through some of the largest retailers in the world and some of the best-known consumer brands. Uh, but they've taken all of this incredible innovation around AI and make that possible for those retailers. Because they're, again, never going to build out giant data science teams inside a retail company. But Qubit can come in and take all of this amazing data they've got around prior purchase history and what people are doing on their website and help them build better recommendations 
uh, for people to buy products. And for companies like that who already have a stellar product, what are the common mistakes you see them making in terms of achieving even greater growth? Uh, we, always, we see a few. And, and uh, yeah, again, this is just my opinion working across lots of these companies now for a long time. You know, when I get nervous for them uh, is when I, after a couple minutes, I can't understand what they're building. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think we've all come across that at we some have. time. And uh, it's working that message down into something very succinct, very clear uh, is hard work. Uh, it's actually much easier to use a lot of words to explain what you're trying to build, but uh, the clearer you can make it, the better. And, and I think most companies can benefit from having someone who's not in their space, uh, hearing that story with fresh ears and giving feedback of you know, whether or not they can understand that. Another challenge we see is, uh, particularly in earlier stages, uh, you know, not being specific enough about where they're gonna focus and target. And so we, you know, that's some of the first advice I give to a lot of companies is pick one vertical, you know, and then pick one workload within that vertical and be an expert at that, be great at that, prove your use cases, prove the value that you can generate, uh, be able to put an economic case to it, get some great customer stories and case studies, uh, and you'll get much more traction that way. You know, when, when you go into a customer and you understand the business that they're in and the challenges they have, and you can communicate the value of your product to them in that language, that's way more powerful. And, and what I see is sometimes a fear to do that of it feels limiting. Mm -hmm. right? If you pick that one workload or that, that one space, uh, effectively means you are not working in those other spaces, yeah. at least for a time but you can always grow into those other spaces. It doesn't mean you have to pick that one right now and never go work into another vertical. But man, having those first case studies and those first stories is so important. And the only way you're gonna do that is really focusing. And can you think of any companies right now that you think have done that very well? or are in the process of doing that very well? Well, it, it, interest, it just going back to my friends at Qubit again, yeah. I, I really respect what these guys have built. And you know, it's, a, it's an AI recommendation engine mm -hmm. that theoretically could be used across all kinds of things. And so they came in and they've really focused on retail as we talked about a moment ago, but they're now expanding into other categories as well. So they're also working with travel companies now. So started in retail, now it's starting to expand in this other space. and and. Uh, I think that's a really great way to start building a business. Get deep in one and then go and move on to your next once you've got a proven base. And you've probably already covered this, but just in case there's any more, what would your advice be for companies that already have an established market that are trying to move more up market or even head towards enterprise? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the first, getting those first wins is the hardest. And I, I think in some cases, the allure of the big enterprise can be distracting in some ways. That There's nothing wrong with having a company that's focused entirely on SMB and mid-market companies. You know, frankly, they tend to be a lot more profitable customers across the board for all of us. Mm -hmm. Big enterprises are super demanding. They're gonna squeeze the deal as hard as they can. They have a lot of power in those relationships. Uh, and so everyone looks toward them, but it's the last place you wanna start. You're going to get way more traction faster starting lower in the market and then building up to it. Uh, but you know, you, the, the key thing you're going to need is proven use cases and proven values. Like even in those enterprises, they'll pay attention to a story that's come from a mid-market account mm -hmm. that you've been able to prove the economic value you've created for that customer. Uh, one of the easy ways you can do it is start tracking your buyers and where they go to. 
uh, you know, those mid-market tier companies are prime hunting grounds for next enterprise buyers. Uh, and so as you start to see one of your buyers move into one of you know, these bigger enterprise accounts you've been trying to get into, that's a prime way to open a door inside those accounts. And obviously, if you start selling to smaller companies with the vision of moving up, you're, at some point, you're going to have to overcome that challenge and not cut those people off, but shift your focus maybe 70-30, 80-20 towards those larger companies. So you mentioned there things like customer stories or customer evidence. Do you think that they are the real kind of golden ticket in making that shift and proving yourself? Because you don't want those enterprise companies to view you as someone selling to smaller companies. You know, no one wants to go first. Yeah. <laughs> and so particularly in the enterprise space, it's high risk for them. Mm. Uh, and so the more proven you are, the better. The more stories you can point to and use cases, the better. And, you know, a lot of, you know, very well-known brands are actually pretty small companies. Yeah. And so if you can secure some of those really well-known brands, even if they're not a big company, that can still have a lot of influence with enterprise buyers. But, but back to one point you said, like even as you start getting into enterprise, I, I don't think you have to walk away from those earlier customer yeah. base. I know that's, that's not what you meant, but it tends to be a completely different way of how they want to interact with you. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to need field-based selling resources instead of an inside sales team. Your marketing is going to be a little different. You're probably going to have different pricing. And so you know, the company I've seen start to build that well tend to build them side by side. Yeah. And so they, they keep their small mid-market sized teams and they build a completely new enterprise structure in some ways to uh, go up market. Before we continue with today's guest, I just want to take a quick second to let you know about our amazing archive of podcasts. It's full of insights from thought leaders from the worlds of product management, design, marketing, and a lot more. People like Megan Keeney Anderson, Megan was VP of Marketing for HubSpot for over nine years. She joined us to talk about how marketers should adapt their customer acquisition strategies in the age of the internet. Internet will rise and fall and go through different iterations. And our job as content creators, as marketers, is to really study that and stay close to it and adapt. You can hear Megan's episode and lots more on intercom.com forward slash blog forward slash podcasts. Okay, let's get back to today's interview. So shifting gears a little bit, you were here talking about AI trends on stage. So how does Google make AI and machine learning easily accessible for the startups and entrepreneurs that you guys work with? Yeah, it's an incredible technology. I mean, the pros and cons of that is there's so much that's yeah. possible with it. Uh, and that tends to be the conversation we're having a lot these days is understanding what's actually possible and what you can and should do with it, uh, what's real, and, and just as importantly, what's not real yet, like what you should stay away from. And so we try to educate uh, SaaS mm -hmm. companies on you know, how we use it. So we have a, a number of APIs available that you can use text-to-speech or video analytics and, uh, different vision APIs that can read images and categorize them for you. Uh, and so we, we give a lot of documentation away to companies to help understand how do we use these tools mm -hmm. uh, and how do we use them effectively. Uh, I think one of the most helpful tools personally is just all the case studies and success stories because just understanding what other companies have done with the technology and how they've used it yeah. just tends to create a lot of ideas of what's possible and understanding what you can do in that space. So we've got a lot of documentation in that space. I, I, I don't think people realize quite how many people we have that could actually talk to customers as well. Yeah. Uh, so we've got you know, a, 
lot of engineers at Google and a huge percentage of our sales team are actually engineers and architects who want to work with customers on how do you adopt these technologies. Uh, so everything from the documentation side that we make available to actual live human beings you can talk to, that's a thing that Google tends to get really excited about is how do we help you build a great product. So you touched on it there a little bit. So there are an abundance of SaaS companies that offer AI solutions, but arguably you could say that the number of them that are genuine AI products is probably a little bit lower than the number that are claiming to be. Yeah. So in your opinion, what are the hallmarks of true AI solutions? Well, I kind of joking, I joke a little about this in the session, but uh, there's, you know, back in those early days of cloud, we got into huge arguments with customers about, you know, what was a private cloud versus a public cloud? And, you know, what, is it even really a cloud if it's private and yeah. it's something that's on-prem? And honestly, at the end of the day, I don't know that that added a lot of value back for anybody. Uh, it was frustrating for us uh, as the platform provider. It wasn't a great experience for our customers to get lectured at yeah. you know, from the <laughs> platform vendors of what it was. And so far, we're managing to avoid a lot of those arguments on AI. And so if you talk to some of our AI experts who are here, you know, they can talk you through you know, the neural network capabilities that make you know, real AI possible, the hardware innovation that's happened in that space. And you know, if you're not using some of those tools, you're not using some of the APIs that will do some of that work for, is it really AI or is it just analytics? Yeah. I don't know that that actually matters that much at the end. Like at the end, customers care about, can you solve some big problem they've got? And right. if you do that with you know, some of the APIs we just described, that's great. And if you can do it with old fashioned SQL statements that work just as effectively, the customer's fine. <laughs> like they just want an outcome of, can you make my manufacturing run faster? You know, can you route my calls inside the call center more efficiently so my customers get better service? You know, can you help doctors do a better job prescribing treatment plans? They're not, they really don't care that much about whether it was AI that delivered it versus some other kind of data processing. But I'm so glad so far, that's a, an argument we're mostly avoiding in this space versus what we did in cloud five, 10 years ago. That's good to hear. Um, and AI is based upon constantly evolving machine learning models. So how do you propose companies um, work with the task of explaining the past decisions that were determined by that technology. So you kind of touched on it there, like obviously when cloud first came about, the challenges that people had to overcome even in just explaining what it was were huge. So how do you think companies today should go about explaining those past kind of determined challenges? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's really important, uh, particularly I mentioned earlier in industries like financial services and healthcare, they increasingly can't even use your product if you cannot explain how the recommendation or the prediction came about. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in financial services, you know, one of the, the obvious use cases, but I think it's illustrative is, you know, you have regulators behind who have to understand why one loan application was approved and another one wasn't. Mm -hmm. And you can't just say the software told me to approve that one, but not <laughs> approve that one. You have to explain why that happened. Yeah. Uh, and same thing in the healthcare space, you know, as you think about uh, all this amazing innovation, particularly that's happening in like medical imaging, mm -hmm. that this technology is able to read x-rays and ultrasounds uh, incredibly efficiently and help doctors you know, spot things they might have missed with their own eyes before. But the technology has to be able to explain what it saw and why it saw it and how it got there. Uh, and you've got you know, auditors and regulators that require that in those industries today. But we're seeing that spread. 
Uh, we're seeing that education today of you know, how the technology is being used and applied you know, based on past learning data. Mm -hmm. So that's important to consider right in the initial product build stages. Like it's not enough just to optimize a model and that spits out the right outcome. The developers who are building those products have to know, I need to document each step of that model that had a useful output to explain what the end result was. Mm -hmm. uh, and that requires building on, that way on purpose. So a lot of it is also just comes into not using too much data and too many variables. If you can solve a model in a very complex equation with two variables instead of 100, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, a lot easier to explain. But that's really different than the industry was looking at this stuff a couple years ago. A couple years ago, it was completely fine that the model would spit out the answer and you just accept it. Yeah. But today, people won't accept that. No, definitely not. So at Intercom, we've been really focused on enhancing our chatbots for sales, marketing, and support teams with more AI. So I'd love to hear what you think are the best use cases you've seen of AI so far. And then just as a follow-up, what your take on chatbot AI really is. Yeah, I mean, in the sales and marketing space, I think there's some really fascinating work happening there. So you know, inside Google, we use a lot of this technology to help our sales team optimize how they're spending their day. Uh, and so you know, we're collecting lots of information about the different touch points we have with customers through support experiences or through product deployments and then inside what's happening inside the sales pipeline. Uh, so we, we have tools internally that help prioritize, you know, which accounts that you need more attention right now and flag, you know, which accounts are at risk of churn or which accounts have opportunities to help grow with Google. And, you know, that's ultimately good for us, but it's also a much better customer experience. Mm -hmm. So if from a customer side, you're going to have a contact with someone who is, you know, understands what's happening in your space, is contacting you at a relevant time uh, on a relevant topic based on something you've been interacting with somewhere else at Google. Uh, so we use a lot of that AI technology just to optimize time. But even inside call centers, so I think a lot of this is really useful as well, uh, such a high volume, high yeah. transaction level space, you've got so much more data to help you predict. Uh, chatbots can be actually a great way to, to help you know, a typical inside sales rep have a much more interesting conversations during the day. Uh, those chatbots can help you screen a lot up front mm -hmm. that used to have a human being have to get through as many contacts as possible before you could have a, an interesting conversation. Uh, it was not a very fulfilling way to spend your day. Uh, but if you've got these chatbots now can help screen all that stuff out for you so that by the time it gets to a person, you're having a really productive conversation. Man, it's a better experience for a customer and it's mm -hmm. a way better experience just as a sales rep. Definitely. And you spoke a little bit on stage as well about marketing disruptive technology. So obviously that's something as we at Intercom moved more into the chatbot and AI world, we face that challenge as a company that aims to make internet business personal. You have to remain neutral in that space of being personal, but also providing the assistance of things like bots. So what are the common mistakes that you think companies in that space are making in terms of marketing? Well, you know, I, I, I see it, but I you know, also confess to having made many of them myself <laughs> that, uh, you know, I get excited about this technology and, and I see a lot of our customers that we work with go through the same thing. But uh, particularly if you're in something that's very transformative or disruptive, you just get excited about the tech and, and you want to go in and talk to customers at the tech and they, you expect they're going to be just as excited about it as you are. And they're usually not. And we all know that. 
but we do it over and over. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's a very hard habit to break. And I think one of the, the most important lessons I've had to learn the hard way, uh, and I've, I watched some of my friends in, in this space going through the same challenge, uh, is going in and talking about the impact, mm-hmm. like the end impact, the end value that you're gonna drive back for the customer. The technology is really not as important as that end outcome that you're enabling. You know, what does success look like for them and how are you going to help them get to it? And it's, we all know that, but it is very difficult to do that because we just get excited about the products that we're working on. I think the the others, uh, you know, if your product truly is transformative and disruptive, it's Mm -hmm. something people haven't seen before or is going to have a longer adoption cycle you get so much pressure from investors and stakeholders to go big right up front and go for the biggest enterprise players you can get as fast as you can because they do tend to be able to make bigger purchases with you, but they are the slowest to adopt that technology. And so it feels slower starting down market and convincing some of those early adopters to gain your product, but that's the way to do it. It's the only way you're gonna be able to build enough of a user base up front to have stories, to have learnings, because those big enterprises are not gonna go first. Every now and then, you're gonna find someone who enjoys being the disruptive and exciting person inside the enterprise. Uh, Those are unusual to find. So I I wouldn't, pushing back on the pressure you're gonna get from investors and stakeholders to start up market first is important. And you'll actually be able to move faster in the end when you build a smaller customer base up front of smaller customers and then build bigger customers on top of them. And can you think of any companies off the top of your head, you don't have to say Intercom, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that are doing this type of marketing of disruptive technologies right? Or just even making enough noise that they're noticeable? Yeah, I mean, I I see it a lot. Uh, And and you guys have been a good example of just the growth (laughs) that you guys have seen. Uh, One of the companies I enjoy working with a lot is a company called Lytix back out of the U.S. And they have a marketing automation technology that, you know, reads all kinds of different data sources inside these marketing groups. They have so many disconnected data sources, but it brings all of that together and helps marketers make better recommendations on, you know, who they should target and why. And they did. They started with a smaller customer base. Uh, they refined the product. They got a lot of things wrong up front, just like we all do. And they're, they're really open about telling that story and what they've learned from it. But man, once they hit that sweet spot of knowing this is what we're really great at, and they can play that over and over again, they established credibility. And today they're working with some of the biggest brands in the world. So we love having them as a partner. We sell with them in a lot of our very large enterprise accounts. But it would have been hard to get there first. Like they, they had to start building that business at the beginning and then build toward those big enterprise accounts. And when we think of AI, it is really easy to assume that all of this innovation is happening in Silicon Valley. But there are people like yourself or even Jeffrey Hinton, who leads the brain team at Google, who aren't permanently based in the Valley. So can you talk a little bit about any AI work that you know that's going on outside of Silicon Valley? Oh. I- I think most of the interesting AI work is happening. <laughs> so I'm uh, a bit biased on this point because I live in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I think everyone else should too. It's a great city. <laughs> but you know, for my friends who live in California, I, I, I have no idea why they do that. It's one of the world's most expensive <laughs> places you can live. But they do tend to think that all of the interesting innovations happening there. Mm-hmm. And man, I've spent the last 10 years in Seattle watching all of these incredible startups in that space, as well as friends working at Microsoft and Amazon doing incredible work. But I, I've visited 30 countries in the last 10 years, meeting with enterprises and software companies, building incredible products. 
and you know, in a lot of cases, you know, platforms like us, you know, it's the people who build on top of it that are truly driving all of the innovation in the space. So we're giving people tools that you can build great products with. And I've seen that in every country I've visited in cities all over the world. Fantastic. And then just to start wrapping things up, so AI and machine learning have very obviously developed really, really quickly in the cloud era combined with hardware development. But what other advancements do you think are really going to move the needle in the next kind of two to three years? Uh, I am particularly excited about the AI space mm -hmm. right now. Uh, I, I just, you know, having watched, you know, what we started with cloud 12 years ago when I first started getting into this space, uh, you know, we, we spent uh, an enormous focus on platform as a service and infrastructure as a service, and that did enable a lot. And if you, you, you look at that as a business today and the hundreds of billions of dollars collectively, and the growth is still impressive. Mm -hmm. But man, what I'm seeing with AI has much bigger opportunity for impact. Uh, like McKinsey is estimating this at $9.5 trillion yeah. uh, across this worldwide range of industries. And the use cases uh, are, are everywhere. Uh, like those initial days of cloud, you were really focused on people who had servers and how do you migrate servers. But man, AI is going to be used by consumers and the way you're using tools and products at home. You're going to use it in your doctor's office. It's going to be used in manufacturing plants. It's going to be used by governments. Uh, the, the impact is incredible. And I think we're just getting started. I mean, when you see some of these use cases today, uh, it's just incredible what people have built with it. And the technology is relatively early. So the concept has been you know, around for a very long time, but you know, what's happened in the hardware space uh, to truly enable that calculations at scale and what's happened with uh, the innovation around the neural network capabilities mm -hmm. to do all this stuff much, much faster and efficiently, that's all relatively recent. Yeah. And you know, the things that are being built on top of that today uh, are just incredible and we're early. So who knows what that's going to look like. It's exciting. It is. You mentioned it there, how AI touches consumers. So just one final question. If you're going to work that way, obviously guiding principles are really, really important. And Google has published its own principles in terms of how to work with AI. But do you think that's something that legislators need to do for their various jurisdictions or something that companies should be left to do themselves and define their own principles? Well, I, I do think there's responsible regulation that will come in this space, but I, I think it's more important that companies are doing that themselves yeah. and thinking through, you know, how are we inside our organization going to use this data uh, and how are we going to use it responsibly? And it, particularly if your product touches consumers in any way, you have to go through that, that process. Mm -hmm. You know, like you mentioned we published a set of AI principles for Google that guide the way we use products and how yeah. we think of the technology incorporated in what we build and ensuring that we're building things for good and not for things that will cause harm. These are very broad statements, that, uh, but every company that builds in this space needs to know that. Yeah. And again, if back if you're in the any regulated industry, you, you really need to be able to know that yourself and to be able to articulate that back to customers of how you're going to make decisions of what you're going to do just as importantly, what you're not going to do and mm -hmm. why, and then what safeguards you're going to put in place for that. Uh, I think that's part of what will help you know, overcome some of the fear people have of this space is partly just understanding what the technology is and is not, mm -hmm. uh, but also all of us as communities and as a society agreeing on what we're going to do responsibly and just as important what we're not going to do in this space. 
That's great. Thanks so much for joining us today. And just for our listeners, where can they keep up with you? Mostly you should follow Google Clouds. (laughs) You look at that space. Uh, But you can follow me on Twitter, Matt Rogers TX. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks, Amanda. If you enjoy our chat with Matt, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing on iTunes, Overcast, Spotify, or your usual podcast platform. This is Inside Intercom.